When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The connection between the United States and Great Britain is often called the special relationship. And that's probably a pretty good description. As nation states go, the U.S. and U.K. are about as close as it gets. Sure, there's some bickering about policy on occasion, and we like to make fun of how one another talk. But there's an understanding that when the chips are down, we have each other's back. Uh, Like an old friend you know you can rely on for a ride home when your car breaks down. And it's not surprising that the two countries are close allies. After all, as we all know, the original states started as British colonies. We share a language, and a lot of the traditions and institutions of the United States were adopted from Britain. So it stands to reason uh, that the country should be chums. But the thing is, it wasn't always like that. In fact, the first national issue that Americans united around was fighting redcoats, uh, notwithstanding a sizable loyalist population. And some 30 years later, round two came with the War of 1812, which to the UK was really more of a sideshow to the Napoleonic Wars. And about 50 years after that, things looked to be shaping up for round three. Between the Trent Affair and the tensions over the CSS Alabama and Florida, In 1862, there were quite a few people on both sides of the pond who were expecting Americans and Brits to have another go at it. The New York Herald, a paper with a huge circulation, declared, A day of reckoning must come. When one of our vessels is destroyed by these British pirates, we will sink and burn a hundred English vessels. We are not a nation to submit tamely to disgrace and insult. And the British pirates the paper was referring to was the CSS Alabama, with its mostly English crew. U.S. Ambassador Charles Adams, emboldened by these calls for retribution, presented invoices to the British government demanding compensation for the shipowners and insurance companies who had borne the brunt of the Alabama's depredations. The British, of course, disclaimed all liability and denied having anything to do with the ship. Tensions were rising and a third Anglo-American war appeared to be on the horizon. In some ways, British neutrality in the early years of the American Civil War was similar to American neutrality at the beginning of World War I, publicly neutral, but providing valuable material support behind the scenes. Along with the Alabama, the British built CSS Florida and Georgia also prowled the seas. 
The Florida and Georgia weren't as prolific as the Alabama, but they each captured and destroyed dozens of Yankee merchantmen. And Washington was especially worried about the so-called layered rams that were being built in Liverpool for the Confederacy. They were monstrous iron-plated warships equipped with a menacing spike on front designed to ram and sink blockaders. Upon the Navy's learning of the rams, a delegation was dispatched to Britain to attempt to buy the rams out from under the rebels for ten times the contract price. A high-ranking Navy official desperately implored the delegation, You must stop them at all costs, as we have no defense against them. But the British shipbuilders denied the massive ships had anything to do with the Confederacy, and they weren't willing to breach the prior contract. A man's word is his bond, after all. Yes, indeed, John Bull and Uncle Sam seemed destined for another clash. But as we all know, cooler heads prevailed. President Lincoln was just too shrewd of a politician to get involved in a hot conflict with a major power while simultaneously trying to subdue the South. And so rather than a military response, the U.S. government focused on diplomatic pressure. The Emancipation Proclamation was, in part, designed to curb British support for the Southerners. All Americans learn in elementary school uh, about how Lincoln freed the slaves. And as a young kid, you get this mental image of honest Abe sneaking onto a plantation in the dead of night and picking the locks to all the cells or something like that. But in reality, Lincoln saw emancipation as, uh, though certainly an objectively good thing, as more of a uh, strategic military calculation. You know, if rebels are fighting for independence and uh, Yankees are fighting to restore the Union, then, you, you know, what's the harm in Her Majesty's government lending a hand to the freedom fighters? But if the war's about ending slavery, well, it would be unseemly to assist uh, the side that was fighting to preserve uh, a practice the Royal Navy uh, took such great pride in having eradicated. And in early 1863, the U.S. government found some additional diplomatic leverage in the form of Clarence Young, a 29-year-old Georgian who had previously served as the paymaster aboard the Alabama, but had recently been cashiered by Captain Raphael Semmes for stealing money from the ship's coffers. Young had an axe to grind, and he was looking to turn his inside information into Union greenbacks. Young made his way to London and linked up with Charles Adams's uh, embassy office. Before long, he was testifying under oath about the details of the Alabama's construction and financing. And he had pilfered the Alabama's financial records uh, when he got fired, so he had the documentation to back up his claims. Young and the records he produced confirmed Yankee suspicions that the British had played a much more substantial role in the Alabama's construction than they were willing to let on. And what's more, English sailors still made up most of the ship's crew. As Stephen Fox, author of Wolf of the Deep, describes it, quote, In every sense, at every level except that of Semmes and the top tier of officers, the Alabama was a British ship and James Bullock was beyond dispute a Confederate agent operating illegally in Britain, end quote. Uh, you'll remember Bullock was the Confederate naval official uh, who had arranged for the construction of the Alabama 
and the other Commerce Raiders, and more recently the Laird Rams. Clarence Young's testimony was embarrassing to the Palmerston government, and in response, British support for the Confederates cooled considerably throughout 1863. As the year went on, British ports grew less eager to allow the Alabama safe harbor, and as a result, it became increasingly difficult for Captain Semmes to obtain coal and supplies, and perhaps more importantly, much-needed repairs. In April, the Yankee pressure began to bear fruit when the British government seized the Alexandria, another commerce raider that was under construction, and in September, Ambassador Adams and the U.S. Navy Department breathed a sigh of relief when the Laird Rams were likewise confiscated. From then on, all but the most optimistic rebels accepted that if they were going to win independence, they were going to have to do it on their own. Now, somewhat ironically, the spat over the Alabama, or more specifically, its resolution, would end up culminating in what is often cited as the beginning of the special relationship. And ever since, the idea of an armed conflict between the U.S. and the U.K. has uh, seemed inconceivable. In 1985, President Ronald Reagan declared at a banquet celebrating 200 years of Anglo-American diplomacy, quote, The United States and the United Kingdom are bound together by inseparable ties of ancient history and present friendship. There's been something very special about the friendships between the leaders of our two countries. Reagan, like numerous presidents before and since, recognized the importance of the alliance and the need for its continued reaffirmation by succeeding administrations, or even, I dare say, by the American hosts of Humble History Podcasts. And so, for my part, I quote the immortal words of Lieutenant Frank Drebin, as he so eloquently put it in the 1988 classic, The Naked Gun. Quote, No matter how silly the idea of having a queen might be to us, as Americans, we must be gracious and considerate hosts to our English friends. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. To all the British listeners, and I'm honored to say that we do have a few, uh, thank you for your good-natured patience uh, with my goofy fake English accent from the last show, and for appreciating the humor in that naked gun quote. In all seriousness, though, we we do all love the Queen. Uh, Freddie Mercury was brilliant. And for anyone who's never seen the naked gun, give it a shot next time you're looking for a good laugh. You'll love it. Today's show is the second and final installment in our look at the CSS Alabama. We'll be on to something new next time, and it'll be a topic that won't be uh, very conducive to uh, dumb jokes, so I'm getting them out of my system uh, now. Uh, But I hope everyone is enjoying the closest thing to a pirate adventure you can get while studying the Civil War. Uh, If you enjoy the show, I'm going to ask a favor. Please rate and review us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or wherever you find us. Uh, Ratings and reviews are one of the most important factors for getting the show noticed. So if you can take a couple of minutes to do a a quick one, it it would be tremendously appreciated. And for those of you who have already provided a review, uh, I want to say thank you very much for that. The reviews um, have been wonderful. And and believe me when I say that the kind words are uh, well received. And finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks as always for listening, 
and I hope you enjoy the show. When the CSS Alabama was still prowling off the coast of New England in the summer of 1862, a concerned New York Governor Hamilton Fish questioned Commander Henry Wise, a Union-loyal Virginia-born U.S. naval officer, about the safety of New York Harbor. If the Alabama was taking whalers and merchant ships just a few miles away, what would stop the ship from sailing into the harbor and giving the Big Apple a volley or two? Unconcerned, wise assured fish that there was absolutely nothing to worry about. Quote, Any one of the armed ferry boats now at the Navy Yard would make toothpicks of her in five minutes. End quote. But the Alabama's December sinking of the warship Hatteras off Galveston, Texas, demonstrated that perhaps the raider posed more of a threat than Wise believed, or maybe more than he wanted to let on with the nervous politician. The Hatteras marked the 36th Yankee ship that had become a notch on the belt of Captain Raphael Semmes, and there would be 36 more over the next year, spread out across the oceans of the world. After the fight, the Alabama picked up the 118 survivors of the Hatteras's crew and hightailed it out of the Gulf of Mexico, knowing well that the Hatteras's sister ships would be looking for revenge. The next morning, when the other Yankee warships discovered the wreckage, the Alabama was already nearly 100 miles away on a bearing for Jamaica. They made port in Kingston on January 20, 1863. Jamaica was still a British colony and would remain so for another 100 years. And that was a good thing from Semmes' perspective, for now. He was granted permission to unload the prisoners, coal up, and arrange for repairs. But after welcoming the rebel ship, the Commodore running the show in Kingston asked Semmes not to stay for too long. Tensions were getting high, and word had come down not to take any provocative actions toward the United States. Now, notwithstanding the request not to wear out his welcome, Semmes was the toast of the town with Kingston's high society. A banquet was held in his honor, and he was asked to give a speech, which he did, dutifully emphasizing the Confederate quest for liberty and independence, and downplaying the importance of slavery in the conflict. Now, for Semmes, this was just politics. He was not anti-slavery by any means, though he would remember his position a little differently in his post-war memoirs. At the same time, he held the popular Southern view that slavery was good for black slaves because they were better off in the South than in untamed Africa. Uh, after the five-day stop-off in Kingston, the Alabama sailed east and immediately got right back to work. The first day back at sea saw the capture of the Yankee merchant ship Golden Rule and the second, the Chase Delane, both of which were burned. The crews of the ill-fated ships were dropped off in San Domingue and the Alabama moved to the heavily trafficked waters off Florida's east coast. In just 10 days off Florida, the Alabama boarded 31 ships, though only five of them were northern-owned. Uh, Yankee skippers' uh, hesitance to risk ca capture was diminishing the hunting prospects off the East Coast. Still, five captures in 10 days was a productive outing, but Semmes couldn't stay near Florida much longer. Once word got out that the Alabama was in town, Union warships were sure to follow. And so they began sailing south heading toward the northeast coast of South America. Along the way, and this is one of the funnier stories in the Alabama's tale, the cruiser set her sights on a British ship. But upon discovering uh, that it was in fact British-owned, 
uh, the crew decided that they would have a little fun. After hailing the ship under Union colors, the boarding party came aboard and pretended to be Yankees. Uh, The friendly British sailors, uh, believing the line, helpfully warned the supposed Yankee sailors that they needed to be extra careful because, rumor has it, the infamous CSS Alabama was patrolling in the area. When the boarding party responded that, you know, their ship was a warship too, and might have a little something for the rebel pirates, and as a matter of fact, their intention was to sink the Alabama, the British sailors advised caution. That Yankee ship looked tough and all, but there was no way it could handle the dreaded Alabama. The Alabama had already sunk warships twice its size, so uh, no sense being foolhardy. Uh, After thanking the British sailors for their concern, the boarding party made its way back to the Alabama, and of course shared the story of their charade with the rest of the crew, uh, who no doubt had a good laugh. Now, the hunting wasn't too bad uh, off of the coast of uh, South America, but as March turned to April and the ships sailed for the first time into the Southern Hemisphere, Semmes started to realize that he had a bit of a problem on his hands. The Alabama supply ship, the Agrippina, no-showed for a planned rendezvous, and as a result the supply of coal on board was running dangerously low. As we've mentioned, the Alabama was pretty fast under sail alone, so coal wasn't absolutely necessary for mobility. It was helpful for high-speed pursuits and escapes, but as long as Sems played it smart, hunting without coal was possible. More importantly, though, the ship's fresh water supply relied on a condenser built into the engine that acted as a desalination mechanism. So no coal meant no fresh water. So although the ship could operate well enough under sail power alone, the crew couldn't stay at sea without fresh water, and for that they needed coal. And coal wasn't um, always very easy to come by. Most depots were unwilling to sell to the Alabama, out of concern that doing so would alienate the U.S. government. But just as Semmes and his crew began to worry about whether they'd find a a friendly port where they could refill the coal store, Providence intervened. Or at least that's the way the devoutly Catholic Captain Raphael Semmes saw it. On April 4th, near Brazil, the Alabama captured the Louisa Hatch. The Louisa Hatch was a cargo ship out of Maine heading for Ceylon, now known as Sri Lanka. And what do you think made up the Louisa Hatch's cargo? That's right, coal. And not just any coal, 1,000 tons of clean-burning anthracite coal, the type the Alabama was designed to run on. They had hit the jackpot. So Semmes filled the Alabama's stores, thanked the Louisa Hatch's skipper for the donation to the Confederate cause, and got back to the business at hand, crisis averted. Now, if someone ever decides to make a movie about the Alabama, which uh, I would definitely see, This scene is going to come off as less than believable, a deus ex machina type thing. I I mean, they're sailing out in the Atlantic Ocean, running low on coal, uh, with only a few harbors left in the world that are willing to sell it to them. And what do you know? They happen upon a ship carrying 1,000 tons of just the right kind of coal. It's like in James Bond movies how the latest modification Q has made to Bond's vehicle just happens to be exactly what he needs to get out of the precise jam that he gets into in that particular movie. 
And Thundercats did the same thing with Panthero's uh, mods to the Thunder Tank for any other children of the 80s out there. On May 11th, Sems decided to take a breather at Bahia, Brazil, where the officers and crew were warmly welcomed by both the locals and the British businessmen in town, who, like uh, Kingston's leading figures, held a banquet in honor of the ship and her captain. But also like Kingston, the Brazilian officials were a little nervous about harboring the ship, uh, not wanting to provoke the Yankees. The governor of a small Brazilian island had recently been fired for welcoming the Alabama too warmly, and word was getting around. Uh, So not wanting to tempt the same fate, the local governor asked Sems not to stay more than 24 hours. Sems honored the request, but not before getting uh, a quick note off to James Bullock, the Confederate agent in London, boasting of the Sea Lark and the other recent captures. Sems wrote, quote, We are having capital success. That little bill which the Yankees threatened to present to our Uncle John Bull for the depredations of the Alabama is growing apace and already reaches 3.1 million, end quote. Uh, what Sems hadn't yet realized, but what Bullock uh, could have told him, was that that those little bills had begun to have more than a little effect on old Uncle John Bull. Yankee saber-rattling probably wasn't overly concerning to the Palmerston government. Uh, Britain was, after all, still the more powerful nation militarily, uh, especially given the the present hotly contested divorce proceedings going on in America. But the prospect of losing another trading partner, and perhaps even worse— being made to look less than forthcoming on the world stage by the uh, ongoing revelations in the depositions of Charles Young, the Alabama's disgruntled former paymaster turned Yankee star witness, we mentioned in the opening, um, had John Bull rethinking the support it had been lending to the Confederates. And in 1863, there were only so many ports in the world capable of servicing a ship like the Alabama, and most of them were British. And that didn't bode well for Raphael Semmes' ship. The Alabama spent the next month sailing southeast of Rio, but pickings were again getting slim, with more and more clever Yankee sea captains temporarily registering their ships under foreign flags or selling out altogether. And with increasing frequency, Semmes really had to work for the prizes he did take. On June 2nd, he spent seven hours chasing down the Amazonian, a merchantman out of Boston. The Amazonian was a a well-built ship, but it should not have been any match for the Alabama in a race. The problem was that the Confederate cruiser hadn't had the opportunity for the regular maintenance that it needed, and its bottom had become overgrown with algae and sea plants, making it less streamlined. When combined with boilers also desperately in need of servicing, the ship was no longer the fastest on the waters, as it had been. So after the seven-hour chase, the Alabama finally closed the distance on the Amazonian and fired a warning shot, and the Boston captain ignored it. Then another, also ignored. A third, a near-crippling hit, convinced the Boston ship to surrender. Uh, Captain Semmes was none too pleased with the Amazonian's lack of uh, respect, and so he didn't afford the Amazonian's captain the customary courtesies uh, or hearing. Instead, he abruptly announced that the ship would be burned, because all Boston ships must be burned. As a prisoner, 
The Amazonian's captain also wasn't allowed the liberties uh, that had been granted to prior captains, and it was instead kept on the deck with the rest of the ship's crew, covered from the sun, but otherwise kept in the open air and made to sleep on the wood deck. Compare this to the captain of the Kingfisher, a whaler who had fallen victim to the Alabama a couple months earlier and spent over three weeks as, as a prisoner. Upon returning home, that ship's captain reported, quote, Although Captain Semmes burnt my vessel and caused me great loss, yet I have no reason to call him a bad man or pronounce such epithets upon him as many have done. I must say that I was treated well, end quote. The rougher treatment of the Amazonian may also have had something to do with Captain Semmes's uh, waning energy. Uh, unlike the crew, most of whom were in their 20s, the captain was 53, and the long months at sea were taking their toll. He recorded in his journal shortly after the capture of the Amazonian, quote, The fact is, I am getting too old to relish the rough usage of the sea. He was worn out, and as they say, there's no rest for the weary. But while he couldn't take a vacation, he could at least opt for a change of scenery, of sorts. Uh, for the first time since the ship's christening, Semmes decided that the Alabama would cross back to the other side of the Atlantic. But not back to her British birthplace. Instead, Semmes decided that they would try their fortunes off the coast of South Africa, in hopes that their prolificity would increase back to earlier levels in fresh hunting grounds. Along the way, uh, but while still fairly close to Brazil, on June 20th, they captured a relatively small, unassuming ship out of Philadelphia known as the Conrad. The Conrad wouldn't be a particularly noteworthy capture if not for the use to which Semmes decided to put the ship. Uh, rather than burn it, he opted to make it useful. Fifteen men from the Alabama's crew and two cannon were assigned to the Conrad, as was a new moniker. Thereafter, the ship would be known as the Tuscaloosa, and it would serve as a complementary raider alongside the Alabama, Robin to the Alabama's Batman. It wasn't the fleet that the rebels desperately needed, but every little bit helps. So now working in tandem, the two ships made the long, boring voyage across the Atlantic on a bearing for the Cape of Good Hope, uh, arriving at a small Cape Colony port about 60 miles up the west coast from Cape Town on July 29, 1863. The Dutch farmers in the area took great interest in this ship, uh, whose reputation had spread throughout the world, and they gladly restored the Alabama's provisions with gifts of fresh food. But the first stop was kept brief, just long enough for the basic maintenance and repairs. Then they set sail for Cape Town. In either a fortunate or unfortunate coincidence, depending on the side that you're looking at it from, the August 5th arrival in Cape Town coincided with that of the Sea Bride, a Boston trader. The capture of the Sea Bride occurred close enough to the coast that the Cape Town locals were able to watch the whole affair, and uh, many from all over the town gathered near the shore to witness the spectacle. Between the free entertainment and the general pro-Confederacy leanings of the South Africans, Semmes and company received an enthusiastic welcome when they settled into the harbor for a visit. Uh, First Lieutenant John Kell remembered, quote, Their enthusiasm was beyond description, and their hearty welcome and sympathy expressed for our cause was truly gratifying, end quote. Loud cheers and gifts of flowers, food, and other niceties greeted the sailors when they came ashore. Apparently quite the good sport, the Seabride's captain made the rounds around the city with Captain Semmes, stoically declaring, 
What can't be cured must be endured. I had not the remotest idea of a capture at the end of the world. The Seabride would end up being the only captured ship that Semmes was able to sell. His original plan had been to sell seized ships and their cargoes to raise money for the Confederacy and to pay the crew the bonuses that they had been promised. But no foreign ports would allow the transactions, and the Union blockade kept him from conducting the sales in Confederate ports. After finding a buyer for the Seabride, this transaction was consummated in a harbor that didn't fall within the territory of the Cape Colony, or any other jurisdiction. Uh, So the sale wasn't illegal because there were no laws in place uh, where it was made. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Alabama's visit was the biggest event of the year in Cape Town. A local newspaper reporter, after interviewing Captain Semmes, wrote, quote, There is but one subject of talk, the Alabama. She is, according to the opinion of Cape Town, the only ship in the world, and Captain Semmes is the only hero in the world, end quote. Uh, another reporter heaped on the praise, quote, There is hardly a man now living and moving within the realm of Christendom who has a better prospect of passing into a hero and becoming the principal character of an epic poem or drama than Captain Semmes of the Alabama, end quote. Inspired by the event, a local songwriter penned a song about the Alabama in Afrikaans, the uh, distinct South African language, which was still being sung in the 20th century. Dar kam di Alabama. I have no idea if that's how you uh, actually pronounce it, um, as I have precisely zero experience with Afrikaans. But if anyone out there listening has some familiarity with the language and wants to set me straight, I would be most grateful for the correction. So Cape Town basically shut down for the first day of the visit, uh, with all the residents wanting to catch a glimpse of the famous ship and meet its captain. Uh, Grateful for the showing of support, Sems allowed well-wishers to come aboard for a tour. He wrote to Anne, his wife, of the warm welcome, quote, I am sure our excellent President Davis never had a more crowded levee than I had in my cabin from 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The ship was packed from stern to stern, all pressing forward to shake hands with me and to beg my autograph. Was not that a predicament for a modest man to be placed in? Indeed, they nearly tired me out with demonstrations of kindness. End quote. There's no doubt that the residents were happy for the visit, but the Cape Colony was territory of the British Empire, and appearances had to be kept up. So after four days as the toast of the town, Semmes was told by a somewhat reluctant official that it was time for the Alabama to depart. And so they set sail around the Cape of Good Hope for one last extended stop at Simons Bay in hopes of finding a harbor with the facilities necessary to restore the ship to top condition. Uh, The repairs weren't meant to be, but uh, proving that the request to depart Cape Town was in fact uh, just protocol and represented no ill will, Semmes was invited to dinner with the British Rear Admiral, uh, who was in charge of the Royal Navy presence in and around the Cape Colony, and they were joined by the colonial governor. 
Even though the official government policy would no longer tolerate any assistance of the Confederacy, uh, individual British officials, at least those in uh, the Cape Colony, clearly had a personal preference for the rebels. The extended voyage resumed on August 15th, with two additions to the Alabama's team of officers. While in Simons Bay, two young Prussian naval officers, no doubt sensing the chance for uh, some adventure and a good story to tell, volunteered their services, joining a few volunteers from the British Navy among the predominantly southern ranks of the ship's officers. Uh, The Prussian officers aren't going to come up again, but I thought that it was an interesting uh, bit of trivia. The return to sea began with a search for Yankee vessels up and down the African coast, Uh, but there were no longer any to be found. Sems journaled, quote, We are on the Yankee track, but see no Yankees. They no longer pursue the beaten road, end quote. Between the lack of a game and reports that the monstrous Yankee warship, the Vanderbilt, uh, was in the area searching for the Alabama, Sems decided to sail for the East Indies in hopes of better hunting prospects. The 4,500-mile voyage across the Indian Ocean was, like the Atlantic voyage, long and boring, punctuated only occasionally when a potential target came into view. Making matters worse, the Alabama's condenser was now completely out of commission, so the only drinking water available to the crew was what the ship could carry. They averaged about 178 miles per day, making excellent time aided by a nearby cyclone that provided helpful wind but stayed just far enough behind to not cause any danger. The Alabama managed only seven captures during its tour of the Indian Ocean, barely enough to stay stocked on food and supplies. The highlight was the capture of the Winged Racer, a high-class clipper well-known for its quickness in New England. The Alabama no longer had the world-class top-end speed that it had enjoyed when it was in pristine condition, but it had just enough for the Winged Racer, which succumbed after only a brief chase. Semmes lamented the pretty clipper's fate in his journal. It was, quote, a sacrilege, almost a desecration, to destroy so perfect a specimen of man's handiwork, end quote. Yeah, you know that feeling you get when uh, you're driving along and you see a Corvette or a, a nice Mustang GT wrecked on the side of the road? I imagine that's essentially what Semmes was feeling uh, when he expressed his regrets over the winged racer. But that didn't stop him from burning it, uh, like the other 50-some ships that had met the same fate. The winged racer went up in flames, and what didn't burn sank to the bottom of the Indian Ocean. After some unproductive patrolling around Indonesia, Semmes decided to give the crew an extended break on a small island in French Indochina, which of course is now Vietnam. The break and the rest were welcome, but the news received from the Frenchmen on the island was not. It was now November 1863, and the news about the war back home was disheartening. Grant had taken Vicksburg, and with it, earned the Union complete control over the Mississippi River. Lee had launched a hopeful invasion into Pennsylvania, only to be rebuffed at Gettysburg before limping back into Virginia. The news hit Semmes and the other officers particularly hard. They were, after all, uh, the ones who had a real interest in the war's outcome. Semmes recorded being, quote, "...greatly discouraged by the news from home. Our poor people seem to be terribly pressed by the Goths and Vandals of the North." End quote. 
But morale among the mostly British crew was getting pretty low, too. Most had agreed to join up for one of two or both basic reasons. Semmes had promised them a cut of the prize money, uh, which was to be earned from selling captured ships in their cargo. But that promise had not materialized because, well, it was impossible to sell the ships without access to consenting foreign ports. Uh, only the Sea Bride had been sold so far. Uh, the rest had been burned or were released on bonds that were looking less and less collectible. Now, had the sales been workable, the whole crew would have been, uh, well, they'd been wealthy men by that point. But it was just not to be. And the other reason uh, that they had joined up was the prospect of thrilling battles at sea. Remember, this is an era where combat was much more romanticized than in modern day. Uh, the idea of standing toe-to-toe with Yankee naval vessels and trading cannon fire was uh, an exciting enticement. Uh, but so far, they, they'd only fought the Hatteras. And of course, uh, Semmes, uh, far from instigating naval fights, was wisely trying to avoid them uh, in favor of capturing Yankee merchant vessels. The Alabama was able to inflict a lot more damage engaging in economic warfare than by trading punches with ships like the Vanderbilt. But to the crew, capturing merchantmen had started to get boring a long time ago. And Captain Semmes's reputation and First Lieutenant John Kell's commanding presence was enough to keep everyone in line for the most part. Uh, but the men were grumbling, and uh, each pit stop was now resulting in a few deserters. Sims knew what was going on, and he tried to limit the stop-offs so as to avoid losing crewmen. But water and coal were necessities, and the number of ports willing to sell to the Alabama kept decreasing. Just before Christmas, he decided to try his luck in the busy British port of Singapore. Once again, Semmes and the Alabama received a warm welcome, along with the request not to overstay that welcome. He learned that the British government had declared that coaling stations in British ports should no longer sell coal to Confederate warships. But he learned this fact uh, from the operator of a Singapore coal company who was in the process of selling him enough coal to refill the Alabama's stores. Uh, like Brazil and Cape Town, the official policy was non-assistance, but unofficially, there were still rebel sympathies in British territories. A Singapore reporter expressed the feeling like this, quote, Whatever may be our impressions when we sedately view the mission of the Alabama, it is impossible in the presence of the little craft not to be momentarily carried away by an enthusiastic sympathy for her cause, end quote. Uh, word of the Alabama's arrival in Singapore got out. And there was again uh, a rush among residents to catch a glimpse of the famed cruiser. Also in Singapore, uh, like mice patiently waiting to play until after the cat left town, uh, 22 Yankee merchant vessels loitered in the harbor, unwilling to risk uh, return to international waters. And the Yankee captains who were willing to take that risk uh, couldn't find any customers willing to trust them with their cargoes. Semmes proudly reported on the uh, effect that the ship's reputation alone uh, was generating. Quote, The enemy's East India and China trade is nearly broken up. Their ships find it impossible to get freights. End quote. They sailed from Singapore on uh, Christmas Eve, with Semmes and the men receiving a, a sort of Christmas present in the form of three captured Massachusetts merchant ships in three days. Uh, prizes owned by Bay State capitalists uh, were the most satisfying to the rebels, uh, much in the same way that capturing 
South Carolina cities, uh, brought the greatest pleasure to the Yankees. But two of the skippers took some of the joy out of the occasion for Sims. The first, the captain of the Texas Star, refused to come aboard the Alabama for a hearing. And when Sims boarded the Yankee ship, angry over not being shown the respect uh, that he thought he had earned, the captive captain presented Sims with bogus paperwork purporting to prove that the ship had been sold to an English company. Uh, Sims easily spotted the sham documents, and the Texas Star was torched. Now, the second captain, the skipper of the Sonora, also refused to come aboard the Alabama, uh, which suggests that um, this was perhaps a tactic that had been discussed among the northern seamen. But Captain Sims uh, didn't have time for this intransigence. When the boarding party returned to the Alabama with news of the Yankee uh, skipper's refusal, Sims sent them back with a simple reply. Upon the boarding party's return to the Sonora, the officer serving as intermediary advised the contrary captain that he would not be forced to come aboard the Alabama. But either way, the Sonora would be set aflame. Whether he would choose to accept Captain Sems's hospitality uh, before the ignition was entirely his decision. Now, with the choice couched in those terms, the Yankee skipper had a change of heart. So the trio of Massachusetts prizes were followed by the long, boring, unproductive voyage back across the Indian Ocean and around South Africa on the way to France. The need for refitting had reached the point that it could no longer be deferred. In modern terms, the Alabama's uh, service engine soon lamp had, had been on for months, and it was past time for a much-needed tune-up. The engines were only halfway functional, uh, leaving the Raider unable to chase down many ships that would have been easy prey a year earlier. And the barnacles and sea plants attached to the bottom uh, badly needed to be removed. But complicating things, the necessary repairs could only be performed in a well-equipped modern harbor. And with English ports now all but closed, Sems hoped to find a more receptive host in the France of Emperor Louis Napoleon, uh, which had recently harbored the CSS Florida. And so the seemingly endless voyage, nearly halfway around the world, began in January 1864. March 4, 1864 marked three years since Captain Raphael Sems had seen his family. Uh, the extended separation, the monotony of the long voyage, the bad news on the home front, and his age were wearing on him. And yet he endeavored to stoically continue what he perceived as a struggle against Yankee oppression. He wrote in his journal, quote, It is three years to the day since I parted with my family in the city of Washington, on the day on which the great Republic of Washington was humiliated by the inauguration as president of a vulgar, third-rate politician, end quote. Uh, just as a quick aside, it's, it's sort of you know, weird to hear Abraham Lincoln described as a, a vulgar, third-rate politician. Um, for my non-American listeners, uh, the U.S. public school system lionizes Lincoln probably more than any figure in American history, especially and uh, specifically for his skills as a politician. So it, it, it's kind of like, um, for any boxing enthusiast, it, it's like someone describing Muhammad Ali as, uh, you know, like a two-bit palooka. But getting back to the business at hand, Sems continued to put on a brave face. But you get the feeling that uh, in his heart, he 
and the rest of the men aboard the Alabama, for that matter, were ready for the long voyage to conclude. So they broke up the Magellan-esque trip to France with a stop-off on a small island near Madagascar, uh, where the men were allowed uh, some shore leave. Now, Semmes had carefully selected the island for its remoteness, making desertion a less attractive option for the men and detection by Yankee naval vessels less likely. And perhaps just as importantly in his calculation, the island was Muslim-controlled, which Semmes recognized meant that no booze would be available to fuel any rebelliousness among the crew. In his journal, Semmes recorded the men's reaction to their uh, teetotaling shore leave, quote, My vagabonds on shore looked rueful and woebegone. Nature had no beauties for them, and there was no liquor to be had. If I were to remain here long, I should make it a practice to send them on shore for punishment. Brief stop-offs in Cape Town, where they were again welcomed as celebrities, and at St. Helena brought more bad news about the state of the war at home, along with confirmation that the British government was now fully convinced that the South no longer had any chance of prevailing, and was therefore now prescribing any aid to the rebels at all, which meant there would be no more raiders to follow in the Alabama's footsteps. A frustrated Semmes grumbled that the, the formerly friendly Brits were now, quote, cowering beneath the Yankee lash like a whipped spaniel, end quote. Uh, so that's pretty clever imagery when you consider the traditional symbolism of, uh, of Britain as a tough bulldog. Uh, and the Richmond Dispatch concluded, quote, We are alone in this war. The rest of the world is not only not for us, but is positively against us. There is no shipyard in which we can build a ship, end quote. Now, the Confederate ambassadors in England, uh, who had been welcomed into the, the homes of high-ranking British officials uh, just two years earlier, were now receiving the cold shoulder. They urged Richmond to announce a plan for emancipation, aimed at winning back the former allies whose support had cooled uh, when Lincoln converted the official purpose of the war from reunion to emancipation. But these ideas were dismissed out of hand by the Richmond politicians, uh, unwilling to sacrifice the peculiar institution, even if it meant improving their prospects of victory. On May 2, 1864, the Alabama hobbled across the equator as it sailed north off of Africa's west coast, and then around Iberia, approaching the French Channel harbor of Cherbourg, known to have military docks capable of returning the Alabama to ship shape. Uh, arriving in the English Channel in early June, Semmes described his ship as, quote, a wary foxhound limping home after a long chase, footsore and longing for quiet and repose, end quote. Semmes planned to allow the men two months' leave to rest while the ship's hull was scraped, bottom recoppered, and boilers repaired. The local officials at Cherbourg were initially unsure about allowing the Alabama to dock, so they were delayed while the officials awaited a decision from the emperor, who ultimately assented. As with basically every port the Alabama visited, word quickly spread of the renowned ship's arrival, and one of the many residents of Cherbourg, uh, who was very interested in the news, was the American consul. He hastily sent word that Semmes had arrived to Captain John Winslow of the Kearsarge, a Union warship cruising off the coast of Holland. Winslow and the Kearsarge had been hunting the Alabama and other Confederate raiders since 1862, 
and had barely missed an opportunity to intercept the CSS Florida recently. Eager not to miss another opportunity, he had the Kearsarge on a heading for Cherbourg within two hours and made the 300-mile trip in two days, arriving on June 14th. Pulling into Cherbourg Harbor, Winslow could barely believe his stroke of fortune. The elusive ship that had been the bane of the U.S. Navy for the past two years was indeed docked in the harbor. The Kearsarge approached close to the Alabama for a final confirmation of the ship's identity and to announce her presence. The crews on both ships sized each other up. Then Winslow moved the Kearsarge back out of the port, just beyond the three-mile line which marked the beginning of international waters. Inside the harbor, Semmes and the Alabama were safe. International law forbids hostilities within a neutral harbor, but the Alabama had to come out eventually, and when it did, the Kearsarge, which was named for a rugged New Hampshire mountain, would be waiting for her. Captain Semmes hadn't been present when the Kearsarge issued her challenge, but it didn't take long for him to learn of it. And now he was faced with a critical decision. But in truth, he knew it wasn't much of a decision at all. At her fighting weight, the Alabama probably could have outrun the Kearsarge, but that wasn't an option in the ship's present condition. The Kearsarge, by contrast, was fresh off a thorough refitting in London and operating at peak performance. And Semmes knew that he couldn't wait to leave harbor until after the repairs were complete, because by then, the English Channel would be crawling with Union warships, and he most certainly was not going to surrender. Not when he had another option. The other option was, of course, to fight the Kearsarge. And so Captain Semmes sent a message to Captain Winslow, who he knew well, and who also knew him. Both captains having been messmates aboard the same warship in their younger days of lesser rank in the United States Navy. The letter went through the U.S. Consul on June 13th, finding its way to Winslow on the 14th, and Semmes left little doubt as to his purpose. Quote, My intention is to fight the Kearsarge as soon as I can make the necessary arrangements. I hope these will not detain me more than until tomorrow afternoon, or after tomorrow morning at the furthest. I beg she will not depart before I am ready to go out. I have the honor to be respectfully your obedient servant, R. Semmes, Captain. Winslow didn't reply, but he didn't have to. His intentions were equally clear. His former colleague, Captain Raphael Semmes, had been responsible for the destruction of over 70 Yankee ships, including the sinking of a Union warship. In the process of wrecking northern commerce, the Alabama had become the most famous ship in the world. Winslow and the Kearsarge had no such reputation to speak of, the latter having never fought another warship. But they intended to earn it, at the Alabama's expense. The two captains presented a remarkable contrast. Semmes, born in Maryland, elected to fight for the Confederacy despite his home state's non-secession. And the Tar Heel Winslow, on the other hand, remained loyal to the Union despite North Carolina's separation. Shelby Foote further describes the contrast in their appearance. The pirate Raphael Semmes, as he was known in Northern papers, was, quote, Slender with a full head of hair, a tuft of beard at his lower lip, and a fantastical mustache, twisted to needlepoints beyond the outline of his face. End quote. The decidedly non-flamboyant Captain Winslow was quote, rather heavyset and balding, with the compensating ruff of gray shot whiskers around his jaw. End quote. 
When compared to their captains, the two warships uh, preparing to square off were much more similar. They were roughly the same size, both just over 1,000 tons and under 200 feet. The Kearsarge maintained a slightly larger crew and carried one fewer gun, seven to the Alabama's eight. But any disadvantage inherent in having one fewer gun was made up for through superior firepower. The Kearsarge featured two 11-inch pivoting Dahlgrens mounted midship and capable of contributing to a broadside from either starboard or port. The Alabama couldn't match the Kearsarge's 365-pound volley, but her Blakely rifled cannon had greater range than the Kearsarge's Dahlgrens and was the most accurate gun aboard either ship. Captain Semmes did his best to prepare his charge for the combat, despite the necessity of foregoing the much-needed repairs. The crew, reinvigorated with the prospect of battle, uh, threw themselves into the work. Again, quoting Shelby Foote, quote, They cleaned and oiled the guns and other weapons, including cutlasses and pikes, sorted powder and shot from the magazines and laid them out in relays, took down the light spars, disposed of top hamper, and stoppered the standing rigging. They polished brass works and wholly stoned the decks as if for a ball. While they worked, they roared out a shanty, a British seaman composed for the occasion. And here Foot uh, quotes the British crewman's song. We're homeward bound, homeward bound, and soon shall stand on English ground. But ere that English land we see, we first must fight the Kearsarge. And I have to admit that I don't know what um, took down the light spars, disposed of top hamper, and stoppered the standing rigging, uh, what all that means, but... Uh, I thought it sounded pretty sweet, so I left it in. For his part, Sam's prepared for the battle by sending ashore 470 gold coins to ensure the men could still be paid after the battle, along with the signed bonds for the ships who had been released. His trophy collection of 64 chronometers was deposited with a friendly British yacht. The final preparation lets you know that, as enthusiastic as they were for a good scrap— the crew were well aware of what they were in for. They spread sand around the deck for traction. And this wasn't in case some salt water sprayed over the side. That's no problem for seasoned sailors. Now, the sand was intended to prevent the gunners uh, from slipping on the inevitable blood once the battle got underway. Captain Semmes chose Sunday, June 19th for the final showdown. And believe me, if I had a budget to license music for the show... A showdown by Electric Light Orchestra uh, would be playing right now. And I guess we'll just have to use our imaginations. So the devoutly Catholic Sam's thought Sunday to be his lucky day. He first ran the blockade with the Sumter on a Sunday. He had christened the Alabama on a Sunday and sunk the Hatteras on a Sunday. And now the Kearsarge awaited. In his journal, uh, which also made its way into the hands of a friendly Brit uh, in advance of the battle... Uh, Sem's intending to use it as the foundation for a post-bellum literary effort, uh, which he in fact did. Um, in his journal, he recorded, quote, The combat will no doubt be contested and obstinate, but the two ships are so evenly matched that I do not feel at liberty to decline it. God defend the right and have mercy upon the souls of those that fall, as many of us must, end quote. And remember that part about the ships being evenly matched, because uh, that's going to come up again. The Alabama sailed out mid-morning on a clear, sunny day, cheered along by shouts of Viva la Confederate from the gathered French crowds, 
who had learned of the impending battle in the newspapers. The docks were jam-packed. Numerous spectators had traveled from Paris for the event, to the point that no decent hotel in Cherbourg had a vacancy. Some had spent the prior warm summer night sleeping on the waterfront to ensure a prime viewing position, and opportunistic street vendors peddled Confederate flags and spyglasses. So the French audience was clearly going to be rooting for the rebels, but it's hard to tell how much of that was uh, rooted in actual fondness for the Confederacy, as opposed to just uh, cheering for the famous Alabama. Either way, the coming battle would be clearly visible from the coast, and not disappoint, at least not from an action standpoint. Incidentally, the uh, gathering of French spectators is supposed to have included Impressionist painter Claude Monet, uh, who would have been 23 at the time. Aboard the Kearsarge, Captain Winslow was reading a devotional when the watchman cried out, She's coming out and she's headed straight for us. He ordered the Yankee sailors to their posts and sailed further out to sea, well beyond the three-mile line, so as to prevent his foe from taking sanctuary in neutral territory in the event the Kearsarge got the upper hand. A French ironclad patrolled nearby, acting as a referee to guarantee no combat occurred in French territorial waters. Captain Semmes had worked out a bold and probably overly optimistic plan. He intended to shoot first, approach rapidly with guns blazing, and board the Kearsarge, which would be captured and rechristened as a new Confederate commerce raider, a sister ship to join the Alabama. In the two years he had captained the Alabama, he had rarely formally addressed the ship's crew. But prior to the duel, he gave an inspirational speech, playing on the men's pride in what they had already accomplished. You have at length another opportunity at meeting the enemy. The first that has been presented to you since you sank the Hatteras. The name of your ship has become a household word wherever civilization extends. Shall that name be tarnished by defeat? The thing is impossible. Remember that you are in the English Channel, the theater of so much of the naval glory of our race, and that the eyes of all Europe are at this moment upon you. The flag that floats over you is that of a young republic that bids defiance to her enemies, whenever and wherever found. Show the world that you know how to uphold it. Not bad. Uh, Not they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. But you know, decent enough. So at 10.57 a.m., with the ships about one mile apart and the Alabama closing, Semmes gave the order to First Lieutenant John Kell, You may open fire at once, sir. The Alabama's Blakely rifled gun started the action with a shot that fell short, followed by one that sailed high, passing through the Kearsarge's rigging. The Kearsarge withheld fire until the range had closed to a half mile then answered with her Dahlgrens. Semmes attempted to close the distance, but Winslow maneuvered to stay out of melee range. The Kearsarge, in much better shape, was faster that day, and, like a quicker prize fighter, would be able to dictate the range of the battle. And so the two ships settled into a circular pattern, moving counterclockwise around one another, each trying to cross the other's T. The diameter of the circle started at half a mile and would eventually close to a quarter mile, as the fight went on over an hour. The rebel ship scored the first hit as a shell exploded on the quarterdeck of the Kearsarge, disabling the crew of one Dahlgren but leaving the gun itself undamaged. And next, like a heavy right cross behind a stiff jab, came the knockout blow. 
The Alabama's deadly Blakely rifled cannon delivered an explosive-laden shell to the Kearsarge's stern post. The shell sunk in, and all that was left was to wait for the crippling explosion. Winslow would no longer be able to steer his ship, leaving the Kearsarge immobilized and taking on water, virtually defenseless. But the explosion didn't come. The powder failed to ignite. The shell had found its way deep into the Kearsarge's midsection. But it was a dud. Unfortunately for the Confederates, the Alabama had not replenished its munitions since beginning the voyage nearly two years ago, and the fuses and powder had become damp from the long months at sea. Throughout the fight, the rebel gunners would be frustrated with seemingly effective blows rendered impotent by moist powder. During the battle, the Alabama's gunners would fire off nearly twice as many shots as the Kearsarge's, 370 to 173. The deficiency was due primarily to the Yankee gunners taking greater care to aim before firing. And as the ships continued to circle closer, the Kearsarge's more carefully aimed shots began to draw blood. With the fight getting closer and bloodier, Captain Semmes noticed that two shots from the Alabama's smoothbore pivot gun that had appeared promising bounced meekly off the hull of the Kearsarge without penetrating. He ordered his gunners to switch to solid shot, but the Kearsarge's hull still repelled the cannon fire. Now the reason for this, and Semmes didn't know it going into the fight, but was not shy in venting about it after the Battle of Cherbourg, was that the Kearsarge had been equipped with armor in the form of chain cable draped over the ship's sides to just below the waterline. The bolted-on wooden planks covered the iron chains to keep them invisible, which Semmes viewed as deceitful. Remember, he wrote in his journal before the battle that he felt honor-bound to accept the challenge because the two ships seemed so evenly matched. Afterwards, he wrote, quote, It was the same thing as if two men were to go out and fight a duel, and one of them, unknown to the other, were to have put on a suit of chain mail under his outer garments. Or maybe like a boxer fighting with loaded gloves. Now, naval historians have debated ever since how much of a difference the armor actually made, and uh, even whether Captain Semmes really didn't know about it or was just rationalizing after the fact. Uh, but either way, Semmes probably wasn't in the best position to complain about trickery. In his account of the Battle of Cherbourg, which is fantastic, by the way, Shelby Foote describes the controversy uh, thusly, quote, However true or false the analogy, old Beeswax, one of the trickiest skippers to ever prowl the sea lanes, was scarcely in a position to protest the use of a stratagem that had been common in all navies ever since Farragut employed it more than two years ago to run past the ports below New Orleans, end quote. Now, the two ships had been trading blows for just over an hour when they began their seventh circle. Captain Semmes had just taken a shell fragment to the hand and, through the use of an impromptu sling, managed to stay at his post on the ship's horse block, which he didn't leave throughout the duration, so that he was constantly visible to both his own crew and that of the Kearsarge. And that was the point when one of the Kearsarge's Dahlgrens, the big 11-inch pivot guns, began hitting home. The first blow disabled the rudder, then a shot passed through the hole near the waterline on the starboard side, flooding the Alabama's boilers. Semmes immediately knew that the Alabama had been rocked, and he tried to steer the ship back for Cherbourg, but the quicker, less damaged Kearsarge was able to cut off the escape. A devastating broadside followed, and Semmes ordered that the Alabama's colors be struck. The Yankee gunners saw the rebel flag come down 
and requested orders from Captain Winslow. He's playing a trick on us. Give him another broadside, was the response. And another terrific volley followed, prompting a white flag and an order to abandon ship. The Alabama, the bane of the Union Navy and scourge of Yankee merchants everywhere, had been knocked out. Captain Winslow sent his undamaged support ships out to pick up survivors and permitted the Alabama's boats to do the same. And Winslow called for assistance to the Deerhound, a British yacht constructed by the same shipbuilder who had built the Alabama and which was on the scene for the entertainment value. At 12.24, the front end of the ship rose up until vertical and the Alabama sunk bottom first into the English Channel. The wreckage would be found by the French minesweeper Circe in 1988, a subsequent dive recovered several of the ship's guns, including the Blakely, which was still loaded. Captain Semmes, barely able to stay afloat due to his wound, had been picked up by one of the Deerhound's lifeboats, as was Lieutenant Kell. When a search party from the Kearsarge approached to the boat and demanded to know what had happened to Captain Semmes, Kell told them that Semmes had drowned, and they accepted the answer. Instead, he had been welcomed aboard the Deerhound by the yacht's rebel-sympathizing skipper, John Lancaster, who spirited, him, who spirited him and many of the other officers away to Southampton, where they were met with a warm welcome and described by the London Times as a set of first-rate fellows. Overall, 28 members of the Alabama's crew died in the battle or drowned afterward. 42 were saved by the Deerhound. 12 by a few French boats in the area, and 70 became POWs aboard the Kearsarge. The only officer to die was the ship's English surgeon, Dr. David Llewellyn. Llewellyn courageously manned his post throughout the fight and throughout the sinking of the Alabama, treating men during the battle and ensuring that wounded soldiers made it aboard the few available lifeboats. Llewellyn, who could not swim, refused to board the last overcrowded boat, which carried several wounded soldiers not wanting to risk capsizing the boat. His last words were, I will not imperil the wounded. Dr. Llewellyn would be posthumously awarded the Confederate Medal of Honor for his bravery. Aboard the Kearsarge, the conclusion of the battle brought the expected celebration. A Yankee officer recorded, quote, Nothing could restrain the enthusiasm of the men. Cheer succeeded cheer as each projectile took effect. End quote. And though the victory was sweet, Captain Winslow was denied the prize he wanted most, the capture of the pirate Raphael Semmes. Semmes had thrown his saber into the sea rather than surrender it to Winslow, denying him an honor which had been fairly won. And upon learning that the slippery rebel captain had survived the encounter, Winslow viewed himself as having been twice deprived. Semmes was safe in England, but as Winslow saw things, quote, by all rules of honorable warfare, he is now my prisoner. End quote. And it wasn't all bad for Winslow, though. Uh, upon learning of his victory, the U.S. Congress passed a resolution of thanks, and he was promoted a commodore effective June 19, 1864, the day he and the Kearsarge defeated the dreaded CSS Alabama in single combat. After the battle, Captain Semmes enjoyed some uh, well-deserved rest and relaxation in England and hobnobbed with British high society. Uh, the government had turned away from the Confederacy, but the populace, especially the upper class, still had their sympathies. A group of high-ranking British naval officers unofficially replaced Semmes's lost sword with an elaborately jeweled replacement. It, it featured engravings of the British and Confederate flags, along with the words peace and friendship. 
Writer George Meredith wrote, quote, The Alabama sunk, and my heart's down with her. Meredith pronounced the Alabama, A vessel whose renown, short as her career has been, may challenge that of any ship that has spread a sail upon the waters. Captain Semmes would eventually make a roundabout journey back to the South after Yankee diplomats began insisting that he be turned over. He would serve with the James River Fleet defending Richmond, and even as a brigadier general in the last desperate hours of the war. But his high seas career uh, was over after Cherbourg. After the war, he was taken into custody by U.S. Marines at his Mobile home, being among the Confederates expressly excluded from the amnesty. And he was held in Washington for four months on charges relating to his uh, career on the Alabama, uh, before being released without trial or explanation. Years later, the lawyer who had been assigned to prosecute Captain Semmes on behalf of the government revealed that after witness interviews showed that Semmes had not engaged in any conduct which could be viewed as, as criminal beyond the uh, generally accepted bounds of warfare, President Andrew Johnson and his administration decided that uh, prosecution of Semmes was uh, not worth the political trouble. Captain Semmes' unapologetic Memoirs of Service Afloat During the War Between the States was published in 1868 and sold well throughout the South uh, and in Britain, but was not well received in the North. The Alabama's legacy would continue after the war in the form of the so-called Alabama Claims, which were claims for damages asserted by the United States against Great Britain, arising from economic losses uh, allegedly attributable to British assistance uh, to the rebel navy. The claims were born in an environment of mutual hostility, with Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner initially and uh, laughably calling on the British government to pay $2 billion in damages or cede control of Canada to the United States. And with the British initially refusing to acknowledge any responsibility, temperatures rose and once again, war between the U.S. and Great Britain seemed likely. But all that changed when, once again, cooler heads prevailed and the Treaty of Washington was approved by both governments. Under the treaty, each side agreed to submit the claims to binding arbitration with an international tribunal, setting a precedent for peaceful resolution of similar future international disputes. In the end, the tribunal awarded $15.5 million in damages in favor of the United States, balanced against a little less than $2 million uh, found to be owed by the United States to Britain uh, as damages arising from uh, an unlawful blockade. Somewhat ironically, the Treaty of Washington resolving the Alabama claims is sometimes cited by historians as the beginning of the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain, uh, or at least the end of any realistic threat of war between the nations. Prior to his death from food poisoning in 1877, Captain Raphael Semmes predicted that, quote, My name will probably go down to posterity in the untruthful histories that will be written as a sort of Bluebeard or Captain Kidd. But as luck would have it, the pirate Raphael Sims, the wily rebel captain that Yankees love to hate, is one of the figures from the Civil War who has, by and large, been treated fairly by Northern and Southern historians. And more importantly, he will forever be remembered as playing the featured role in the story of the CSS Alabama, a ship whose career began by bringing America and Britain to the brink of war, and whose legacy helped to commence one of the great alliances of the 20th century and beyond.
And that will do it for our portrait of the CSS Alabama. Thank you all for your patience in waiting for this new episode. I'm trying to get these things out uh, with a little more frequency, but work commitments don't always allow for that. Either way, I hope you'll join us next time uh, as as we begin a look into a uh, slightly more controversial area of the war. And I'll leave it at that for now, uh, hopefully to build some suspense. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.